Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, antitrust law and price signaling. Ron, how you doing? I'm great, Ed. How are you? I'm good. The, I, I, the first thing I want to say is, I'm not antitrust. I don't understand. I mean, why would anybody want to be antitrust? I feel like Emily Latella. What? Why? <laughs> why? Why is anybody antitrust? I like trust. Isn't trust a good thing? Why do we need? Why do we need laws against be against trust? Uh, it's a great. It's a great line. Yep. Um, you know, this is an obligatory topic that pricing just has to cover. If you talk about pricing, you have to talk about antitrust law. We had to do this, Ed. We put it off for, what, 165 shows or 163 yeah. shows? So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because this, this is the, we, we deal with a lot of technical topics, Ron. We deal with sometimes some pretty esoteric stuff. And, Almost every time we're like, okay, we, we we can figure out a way to make this one exciting, and I, I think I think we're going to be able to do it with this one. But I got to tell you, this is the one that I have most trepidation about because this it would be snoozing in about three minutes if we yeah. do this the wrong way. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, so uh, <laughs> let's let's just dive in. Though I will say the second part of this, and I'm not sure if we're going to get to this in the third or fourth segment, but the price signaling is usually very underdeveloped um, in terms of talking about pricing. Uh, I even saw some tweets that out there and even on LinkedIn saying, what's price signaling? So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to discussing that because it's something that, that is becoming more and more common, but you need to be aware of it to see it. You know, it's that yep. it's that red BW syndrome, right? You didn't notice them until, you know, your spouse bought one and then they were everywhere. Yep. So, so either your spouse is a trendsetter or they have been there all along and just, they just weren't on your radar screen. So that's, yep, that's kind of how I, yeah, that's kind of how I feel about, um, price signaling, but you know, after the civil war, um, you know, after we developed better transportation and, and integrated, you know, local markets, you know, corporations started to grow to an, a, a massive size partly to take on um, the advantages of economies of scale. And with that, they started to develop these intricate links of of, uh, interrelated trusts, hence the term trust buster, hence the term antitrust law. And people were worried, especially about the railroads, right? The farmers, that the railroads had such a monopoly or such monopoly power, they could do whatever they wanted and there's nothing you could do. And of Mm -hmm. course, Politicians being the lagging indicators that they are, they passed the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, and this is what made acts in restraint of trade illegal. 
Um, but it, you know what's interesting about this, Ed, and, and people confuse this a lot. Um, monopoly is not illegal. Correct. It's, mono- it's monopolization. Acts of monopolization, like collusion, things like that. That's what's illegal. Just because a company is big in and of itself and may even command a dominating market share does not necessarily mean it's engaging in illegal activity. But the Sherman Antitrust Act certainly led people to believe that and the way the government enforced it through the Department of Justice, especially when you look at some of the early suits against John D. Rockefeller uh, and Standard Oil. You know, here was a guy who, um, between 1870 and 1885, dropped the price of kerosene oil, which we relied on tremendously, from, what was it, 26 cents to 8 cents in that period of time. So because of economies of scale, because of the widening market, prices were dropping, but obviously Rockefeller Standard Oil was getting bigger and bigger. So then, you know, when we, when we switched to oil, he was accused of predatory pricing. Mm-hmm. And then that whole thing started. And what I find interesting about that whole thing is, in my view... A monopoly can really only be be granted by a governmental fiat, right? In the end, a, a true monopoly. In other words, what really what happened? We'll probably talk more about this later. But like, for example, the Bell system, Ma Bell and AT and T. I mean that 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 came about and was in fact a true monopoly, a true utility, uh, be, because the government gave it the authority and wouldn't let competition into the market space, right? Whereas yeah. just some of these other larger organizations that were, you know, trusts, and we had the whole whole trust busting, they were they were just doing better from an uh, from an economic standpoint and economies of scale. That ha- had they gotten or done what people feared, which is once they are dominating the market and jacked the price up, they would have quickly had additional competitors enter the marketplace. Absolutely. I, you know, one one thing, um, I think you're absolutely right about only a government can create a sustainable over a long period of time monopoly. Correct. Kind of like what we do with, with the cable companies, right? We only grant so many franchises in each territory type of thing or what governments do with, with uh, liquor bar licenses or, or taxi cab medallions. <laughs> Same type of thing, these artificial monopolies. The other thing that often gets overlooked uh, of what can create bigness and and monopoly power is when we uh, limit and restrict and tariff and tax imports and don't allow foreign competition. I mean, foreign competition is probably the biggest trust buster ever, far more effective than the Department of Justice, the government, private antitrust suits. I mean, foreign competition has just decimated. I mean, look at the big three auto companies. Right. <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, they yeah. weren't taken down by the Justice Department. At one point, GM had a 50 or it might have even been 60, somewhere in their percent market share. And now, you know, it's what is it, 18% or something? I mean, they're, they're a shadow of their former selves. And that's largely because of international trade. So if, you, if you're worried about monopolization, you want more international trade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which seems to be counterintuitive to the way that a lot of people think. Right. Well, especially today, yeah, yeah, uh, right. absolutely, yeah. We we keep threatening to do a show on uh, 
why we're not worried about the trade deficit. We need to do that. But I, I want to hit this predatory pricing, Ed, because this is something Standard Oil, you know, got uh, got prosecuted for. And there's a great economist out there. I'm going to highly recommend this book because even though this can be a dry topic, it's not with this author. And, and, and if you've got any interest in this whatsoever, especially the historical origins of some of this stuff, uh, Dominic Armentano wrote a book called Antitrust and Monopoly, Anatomy of a Policy Failure in 1990. And one of the things he takes down is this concept of predatory pricing. Now, I don't care what history book you pick up. The conventional wisdom is that John D. Rockefeller and other robber barons and this threat always is thrown out there are going to engage in predatory pricing. You know, they're going to drive out their competition by lowering the price. Once the like what happened with the with the EpiPen, right? Yes, yes. Yep. <laughs> and, and and once the once the competitors are driven out, they're going to jack the prices, you know, ten times higher than where they were. This is such a common narrative, and it's never ever happened. The scholarship on this is overwhelming. That. There is no way that a predatory pricing strategy can be sustainable long term, mostly because costs in big firms, you know, the cost of doing this for a big firm is massive. Mm -hmm. if, if Rockefeller has a 90% market share and starts undercutting everybody, <laughs> he's going to suffer 90% of the losses 90 times faster, right? And, right? and that would probably be devastating. Plus, there'd be an uncertain length of time of how long it's going to take to put his competition under. And what if the competition just closes their doors and then just re-enters when prices start to go back up? Or what if another competitor buys the extra capacity? Um, so monopoly position, uh, have, building up a war chest, and then engaging in predatory pricing it's like, this is a chicken or egg thing. How do you get the one without the other? <laughs> right. But what about that, Ron? What about the, the, the EpiPen situation? What's the, re what's the response there for the, the guy? I, I can't even pronounce his name. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, the EpiPen is really interesting because there's an additional layer there of FDA regulation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, patents expiring and there is generics and, and there are gene aren't there now generics on the market? I just remember reading something in fee about and even I think even the people that make EpiPen put a generic on the market to, to kind of allay some of the criticism. Right. Um, right. So, I, I, you know, it, it's I, I mean, that's not an example of predatory pricing. I guess that would be an example of monopoly pricing. I mean, you're taking definite advantage of something, but I, I go back to this idea that if the drug companies weren't as regulated as they were, there'd be more competition. It would be easier to enter the market. And one of the things regulation does, as we know, is it increases the barriers to entry tremendously. Right. And yeah, and that's ex exactly it, the case. And you know, the, the EpiPen, you're right, it is is that once it was known that the the price was was so high. Other people tried to enter, and it, as it turns out, I believe there was a very specific law on the books that uh, did not allow for additional competition to come into the market. So, again, it was a government 
mandate that allowed this guy to have this monopoly. And you're right, it's monopolistic pricing, not predatory pricing. Sorry, I got wrong example. But it, it, no, either okay. way, it's that's, kind of kind of the same the same sure. theory, right? Sure. And just one more thing on top of this, Dominic. Uh, Armentano book that I'm going to highly recommend. I'm also going to recon- re- recommend another one just to corroborate the idea that predatory pricing, economists can't find an example of it, a credible long-term example of it ever, anywhere. Uh, John Lott, another economist studied it, wrote a book called Are Predatory uh, Commitments Credible? and tore this down. Stephen Landsberg has torn this down. David Friedman has torn this down. Um, so there, there's just no, there's just no credible empirical evidence for this head, but why does the narrative continue to exist? Yeah, you know, it's a good one. I think that the Landsberg example that you get, if I remember correctly, that was regarding a, a Walmart issue, right? Where Walmart, uh, w- w- was accused of trying to put lo- local mom and pod, uh, pharmacies, pharmacies. Out, yes. right, out, out, out of business, right? Um, and it, it, you know, it t- turns out that it, it got thrown out of court because at some point one of the pharmacists that he was admitted that they were basically pretty inefficient in <laughs> right in their ability to deliver. And then it was realized, oh well, that means that actually they've been overcharging for a long time. <laughs> right, and and I definitely want to talk about that too because a lot of this antitrust is predicated on the wrong theory of value, but that's a whole separate issue. So, uh, but folks, in the meantime, we need to take a break here. And we'd like to remind you, if you'd like to contact Ed or myself, you can do so. Send us an email at asktsoe at verisage.com. Check out our show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll post full show notes on today's show with the books that we recommend and some of the topics and cases that we talk about. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You 
are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here doing antitrust law and price signaling. And Ed's going to be rejoining us here in a minute. He has some technical issues. But I want to talk next. We talked about the Sherman Antitrust Act a little bit from 1890. And that actually made acts and restraint of trade illegal, uh, subject to criminal prosecution. The next set of antitrust laws were, was the Federal Trade Commission Act of 1914, and this was established to investigate unfair practices and issue orders to cease and desist by, uh, it also created obviously the the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, and this is not, these are not criminal prosecutions, so they have no criminal authority, it's a civilian uh, issue, much like the SEC doesn't have a criminal authority to prosecute, like insider trading, if, if they come across those cases, they refer them to the Department of Justice, and the Department of Justice does it. Uh, but the FTC Act of 1914 was felt it was needed because they needed faster um, types of, of redress than judicial law could give them if they, if they saw unfair business practices and things like that. So... Then the Clayton Act of 1914 um, was also passed, which outlawed unfair trade practices. It restricted things like mergers that would substantially reduce competition. It it restricted tying arrangements, you know, things like if you buy our copier, you you have to buy our toner or only our toners will fit in your, in our model copier. Uh, it, it dealt with um, and banned exclusive dealings, and it also um, didn't allow acquisition of stock in competitors. Uh, so these two acts combined did all those things, and again, it wasn't uh, they weren't criminal. They were they were brought by the FTC as a form of quicker redress than than seeking it in the courts. Um, Ed, are you back with us? Uh, okay. Um, and then we go into the Robinson Patman Act of 1936. And this one's really interesting and, and has a lot of relevance to this show since we talk so much on this show about price discrimination. And the Robin. Oh, okay. Hey, Ed. Hey. The computer <laughs> god's not smiling on us yeah, today, Ron. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, well, welcome back. I've just got, I've just explained the Federal Trade Commission Act of uh, 1914 and then the Clayton Act of 1914. And now I'm talking about the Robinson-Patman Act. And what I find fascinating about, about this act, Ed, is it strengthened the provisions of the Clayton Act, But it, and, and this was in 1936, so we're in the middle of the New Deal here, uh, but it outlawed price discrimination. And I just want to point out, since we spent so much time on this show talking about price discrimination, I just want to point out that the Robinson-Patman Act does not apply to services. It only applies to goods. So if you're a professional firm, you don't have to worry about this. But if you have clients that are selling products, especially if they're selling through distributors, then this becomes an issue. And what's fascinating, Ed, about this act is it was, of course, passed in the middle of the New Deal. And the New Deal, of course, wanted to protect small businesses. Um, like they, you know, there was a lot of chain stores that started to grow rapidly during this time, 
and the government was adverse to price competition and the act itself was drafted by the U.S. Wholesale Grocers Association. I mean, literally a special interest that wow. didn't like price competition. That, you know, it'd be, it'd be the equivalent of the small business group getting together and, and you know, writing a law against Walmart being able to cut their prices. Because the New Deal policy and mentality was price competition isn't good. It lowers wages. It lowers jobs. It brings destructive competition. It's one of the reasons why the New Deal lengthened and deepened the Great Depression. Right, right. Because when you can't, we can't, when those things can't fluctuate, whenever, whenever you put an artificial barrier on price, right, it's the same thing as, as uh, fixing that supply and demand curve, right? And, and don't allow them to float freely, regardless of what the price is. And a, a wage is just another price. And obviously that one affects the other. So that's a, it's a huge challenge. Yeah, I look, I, well, I'm, I'm, I'm. Can I say I'm sort of glad I missed the conversation about the acts because it's the most boring part. So I'm glad I didn't could skip through right. those. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you did a fantastic job, Zoran. Um, keep, keep keeping keeping them interesting. But you know, and I, I, I like the, the the to point out that you said while price discrimination is not something that is subject to services firms. I do believe, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Ron, that they still can't collude on prices. Oh, right. Oh, right. Collusion is almost right? always <laughs> almost always illegal because that is monopolization, right? right. Colluding with competitors, d- d- divvying up a market, say, based on area code or zip code or something like that. No, and I can't sell you sell this to you. You have to go to this place, you know, one of my competitors. That correct. That's pure, purely illegal. But, you know, Ed, it's a really interesting point, and this was made by Gary Becker. He said, you know, even in the absence of any of these antitrust laws against collusion and, and, and all of these different types of anti-competitive so-called activities, look at OPEC. OPEC can't keep itself together. <laughs> it, even when it had strong market power, it, it, it inevitably crumbled because the, the benefits of cheating are so high, and OPEC is completely outside of the antitrust realm. Yeah, sure, because it's an international organization not based in the U.S., right? Right, right. Yeah. So, and, and again, I just want to reiterate, the foreign competition here is really important. It's, it's one of the great trust busters. But I'll tell you another thing that's a great trust buster, and this is something that Art Laffer brings up. Art Laffer asks a pretty provocative question. How many uh, companies does it take for an industry to be competitive? The answer is one. The answer is (laughs) one. Because there's always the threat of a new entrant. And as long as entry barriers are kept low, and this is why regulation is, is, you know, so pernicious, and this is why licensure is so pernicious, anything that blocks entry, um, and even in some cases I might add exit, right? Because there's there's Mm -hmm. exit costs too. But anything that blocks entry... um, has a monopolization effect. It, correct. And, you know, one of the great examples of this that I like to point out, because people people do say, well, what about what where, what if where the high the barrier to entry is high? Like, for example, the cable companies, right? And you have all of this infrastructure that you've got to build, yada, 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 yada. And it looked, same thing was true with Ma Bell. I, I personally think that if we had had more competition in that space, we would have had cell phones a lot sooner. After all, the technology for cell phones, I think, was patented around the, in the 50s sometime. Maybe right? before. Yep. yep. 
So there was some some you know per, and it, there's a famous like uh, actress who's on that patent. I forget. I have to look this up, but um, I don't know if you're aware of this. It's very weird. Like she's yes. she's a very very famous actress, but she was also uh, on the patent for cell phones. I mean, right. Like, oh, I know who you're talking about. In fact, this is one of the things that Thomas Hazlitt's new book, The Economist, out here at UC Davis, talks about. I think he makes the point in there that the cell phone technology was actually restricted by the government in a sop to, to Ma Bell, basically, because they didn't want the competition. Yep. And, and and so my point being, again, that even though people, well, what about, you know, places where there's large barrier to entry? Well, but there are technologies that, that, when when their prices become so high that they're considered burdensome, or even if they don't become uh, burdensome, right? Even if they do keep their prices low, it, it, cr- new in, new innovation is happening all of the time. And as long as you allow that new innovation to happen, well, then in some cases they can get, they can get past using some other technology that wasn't even thought of in that industry that is possibly even superior to stuff that currently delivers. Look at satellites, right? The delivery of satellite TV as opposed to cable. Now you can argue, well, that was you know years and years in coming. All right, well, I'll give you that. But there could have been other technologies that were developed in lieu of these monopolies that existed. I, so I, I just don't buy the, the, the argument about a, a monopoly at all. Uh, so, yes, I wholly agree with that one statement. And that if you have a pure natural monopoly like the power grid, you know, the whoever provides electricity into your into your home or or you know even if you even if you conceded the idea that Ma Bell had at least for a while a natural monopoly then there's three things you can do with that you can just out and out nationalize and let the government take over right like they did in Europe a lot you know the the, mm-hmm. the phones and the the power and the airlines and all that or you could regulate it and make sure that it that um you know, has uh, just a, they can only earn a certain return on capital and things like that. Or you can just kind of leave it alone, an unregulated natural monopoly. And George Stigler, who was a Nobel Prize winning economist at the University of Chicago, started out his career as being, you know, very pro antitrust law, thought it was terrible that he had this concentration of power, monopoly, all of this. As he studied it his entire career, he actually came to the conclusion that antitrust law did more damage than than good, and he became one of the most vocal opponents against it um, because he found that it really harmed the consumer more than anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Totally see that. Oh, by the way, I, I did was able to look it up as you were talking. Hedy Lamar. Hedy yeah, Lamar. Okay. Hedy, okay. Okay. I had heard that before, but I totally forgot it. <laughs> yeah. So has has the patent, and we'll put it up on the on the uh, on the website. Holds one of the patents for a secret. It was actually a secret communication system, but it basically was a cell phone. So pretty. <laughs> and and you know, Ed George Stigler was a pretty funny, very funny guy. He's actually a very entertaining writer, a very dry, you know, droll sense of humor. But he actually uh, testified before the subcommittee uh, in Congress about the Robinson-Patman Act, and they were thinking about strengthening it, and he said, the Robinson-Patman Act is opposed by virtually all economists. I hope the subcommittee will reflect upon the fact that if all the prominent economists in favor of of the Robinson-Patman Act were put into a Volkswagen, 
there would still be room for a portly chauffeur. <laughs> there you go. All right. All right. So well, I'm, well, we're wrapping up. But just 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 a, a mere coincidence, and I'm I'm probably taking us off topic here. But I want to get back to Hedy Lamar for a second. Austro, she was also an Austrian. So she had yeah. another uh, <laughs> another Austrian <laughs> economist uh, to add to our our list. Hedy Lamar. All right. Oh, wow. Well, we are up against a break here. I want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or myself by sending an email to ask t s o e at verisage dot com. That's a s k t s oe at verisage.com also remind you that hey we've got our event coming up and it's not too late you can still uh, participate in the both the art of value symposium and of course the i'm sorry the art of value conference and then the verisage symposium which are happening the same week here in north texas to if you want information about that shoot us an email ask tsoe at verisage.com and uh, you can get preferred pricing if uh, you send an email to either one of us uh, but right now, a word from our sponsor. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the foreword changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're doing antitrust law and price signaling. And Ed, I just want to make one last point before we move off antitrust. And that is okay. the whole antitrust framework that the government uses 
is predicated on this idea of the perfect competition model. Now, the perfect competition is just a model. It's not supposed to depict reality. And it's not a very realistic model, right? It assumes that firms uh, just are market takers, they, they price takers. They have no influence whatsoever. It, it assumes that consumers have perfect information about everything, the prices of everything, um, that, you know, any one individual firm can't affect any other, and that goods are only things that you can enjoy. You know, so it only really deals with rival goods not non-rival goods like ideas and knowledge and things like that books and movies and so in a world of perfect competition you wouldn't have procter and gamble spending five billion dollars in marketing and advertising why would you you can't influence anything right Mm -hmm. brands wouldn't be built There, there you know there'd be no reason to give warranties or any other thing i mean this is a crazy model and yet this is what the antitrust regulators used to look at. Now, luckily, that's decreased tremendously, but there's still there's still traces of it left in, in the thinking. And what it doesn't realize is that competition is a process. It's not an equilibrium condition, right? I mean, we talked about Ma Bell and then IBM. Remember, IBM was the big bad monopoly, and we had a 20, 30-year antitrust suit against them. And then all of a sudden, IBM dropped out, and it was Microsoft. And now it's Google and Apple and Amazon, and they're starting to look at that, and there's talk about, these three things are monopolies, and you know. And I'd like to point out again that just because they're big and they may be monopolies, that doesn't make it what they're doing illegal. There's no evidence that they're colluding or you know engaging in monopolistic or other restraints of trade. Um, so I just you know it's just absurd um, that that the regulators can come in after the fact and say that is not a competitive free market price because as Murray Rothbard so humorously pointed out. Free markets contain only free market prices. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> and and yeah. in effect, if you think about it, all business contracts are, are in some res- respect a restraint of trade, right? If I enter into a contract with a company, it might disbar me from uh, uh, working with another company or something like that. I mean, those are little restraints of trade, but they're acceptable because, you know, they're consenting adults entering into capitalist acts. So... The whole the whole antitrust thing is kind of this mindset of central planning that we can tally up social costs and benefits and somehow weigh them and determine whether a price um, is fair or not. And yet, this the the theory that value is subjective kind of does away with all of this. Somebody pays for something that means they got more value than they paid, um, and therefore, by definition, it was a fair price. That's right. What's the, your phrase? Capitalistic relations between consenting adults, right? <laughs> By definition, if if I agree, if I agree to pay to a price, and we we got got into this with our friend Reed Holman, uh, Reed Holden, and if you recall on the show that yes, he did, yes, where you know, and this guy's a pricing expert, and and look, one of the best there is, and 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 still my mentor as well. But I think he was just dead wrong on his example that he gave about someone to come and fix his refrigerator. I think he had a problem with his ice maker or something right. and he was just just absurd he thought it was absurd that the price was $250 and he didn't think that was a fair price and I said Reed did you pay it he's like yeah I said well then you know <laughs> therefore it must be fair I mean <laughs> right yeah, so it, I mean it, People pay unreasonable prices, right? Well, I mean, it, you may not like the price, I suppose, but you still valued it somehow more than two hundred and fifty dollars. Otherwise, you just would have bought a new, whole new refrigerator, right? Right. 
Um, but I, look, I, hey, I've got something in my stack of stuff for Free Rider Friday next week on Facebook that mm-hmm. I, I can't wait to reveal and get your reaction to. It's 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 sort of related to this, but but not. It's about Facebook and it's about what what the power of Facebook really means in a lot of cases. So I'm I'm anxious to talk to, the, to you about that. And it's not a and and I'll, and I will tell you I'll relate it back when you hear it why. I think they might be going after Facebook from a monopoly standpoint. But so right. I mean, more on that next week. That's a little <laughs> there's teaser. So, there's been so much talk about, you know, Google and Facebook and Amazon, GAFA or whatever they call, you know, these four companies and their monop- so-called monopoly power combined. They're talking about regulating them like they were utilities or sewer companies. The Economist wrote an article. It's in my stack, too. Um, but I, I will say, just to close out this antitrust discussion, that this is where economists have made a massive contribution to the thinking in legal circles. They moved the discussion away from market share, market power to consumer welfare. And they mm-hmm. said, you know, basically, unless you can prove that consumers have been harmed, it's really difficult to, to, to prevail in these, in these antitrust suits these days. And I think that's really important because let's face it, big firms um, you know, have massive economies of scale and they, they usually run more efficiently and more effectively and they sell at lower prices. They also pay higher wages and better benefits, by the way. Now, I'm not, I'm not sopping for big firms here. I'm just saying this is the reality. Um, and we have to look at consumer sovereignty. I mean, I just got an email from uh, Ed. There was an Amazon uh, lawsuit uh, of ebooks versus Apple. Right? Yes, I got my four dollars this week. Yeah, you got four. I got a buck ninety. Now, <laughs> now look, you got you know you got twice as much as I did. But how? So okay, we're the consumers who were supposedly harmed from this. My question uh, is, how much do you think the lawyers got? <laughs> you think it was more a, than four dollars minimum wage? <clears throat> yeah. yeah, yeah. So no. anyway. Um, antitrust is, is, is a fascinating area to me. I, I, I think to close this out, I'll just say this, that, you know, the problem with it is the law is so vague. The court's rulings are all over the place. The scholars that have studied this are just, you know, rail against this uh, inconsistency because the bottom line is if you raise your prices, you're obviously engaging in monopolistic behavior. If you lower them, you're obviously engaging in predatory behavior. And if you keep your prices the same, you're obviously colluding. So what do you suppose, you know, what, what, what's, what's right, what's wrong here? It's very, very unclear. And, right. and this is where I give the economics profession a lot of credit for coming in and at least cleaning up some, some uh, fuzzy thinking, to say the least, in this area. Well, let's hope they continue down that path because I, I, I do think that, as you said, the narrative is – continues and is consistent so you know just look at that what with the the whole thought that we thought with microsoft was they were they were worried about a zero dollar product right internet explorer that right. they somehow this was you know taking out the the other players in the marketplace it was a netscape or whatever that used to charge for it but now where again where was the consumer hurt nowhere but let's let's move on to price signaling ron because this is a this is a a fascinating topic and what I like about this, and uh, if hopefully we haven't lost our entire audience on the antitrust stuff, because what's interesting about price signaling to me is that while, yes, it is used by very large firms, this is one area that I think can be really scaled down to the small business. And firms 
can use price signaling at a very local level. And that's why I find this topic so fascinating. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And it was it's really designed, of course, to avoid price wars because price wars can be incredibly destructive, right? They can destroy value across entire industries. And, you know, when you're when you see your com- competitor dropping their price, you really have to ask yourself, what is going on here? Is this some type of short-term move to clear out maybe, you know, leftover inventory or spare inventory? Is it is it to utilize excess capacity? You know, we see this a lot, professional firms, you know, they'll drop their, their prices during the slow times of the year, that type of thing. Um, so you can't, you don't, don't have a knee-jerk reaction to a competitor cutting a price. Try and gather some business intelligence and figure out why they're doing it. And if they are doing it as a way to engage in price wars, well, then there's things that you can do. And the last thing we want you to do, of course, is, you know, don't offer a discount publicly, right? If, you, if, if you're going to, if you're going to engage in, in discounting, do it privately. Don't, don't announce it. <laughs> that that's one thing you can do. The other thing you can do is you can just offer a discount or as Ed would say, a preferred price. I, I hate using that word um, discount, but you can just offer a discount just on incremental business, right? So not, not a discount across everything they buy, but just what they incrementally buy. Maybe you can avoid offering a discount altogether by upping some other value drivers in your in your uh, business, such as turnaround time or you know speed of service or payment terms, those types of things, um, there's things that you can do without dropping your price because the risk in dropping your price is you're telling your customers kind of implicitly and maybe explicitly that you've overcharged them in the past, and you're giving legitimacy to your competitors' offerings when you drop your price. And so a lot of price signaling at is, is about how to avoid these destructive price wars. For, for instance, um, you know, I, I think back to the, to the eighties and even nineties, and you probably remember this too, but the airlines and the rental car companies, they would engage in these incredible, and even hotels would engage in these incredibly destructive price wars, right? And they would last sometimes for quite a while. Now you don't see those so much. And I think the reason you don't see them is because pricers have moved into the C-suite and they've kind of taken this over. If they do engage in a price war, it's very strategic, it's very surgical, and it's very limited. So if, for instance, United were to attack Delta in one of its markets, American would come back and strike United in one of its markets and that would, in a sense, be a signal, hey, you guys, lay off, or this is going to get ugly. And mm-hmm. most of the time, <laughs> you know, the prices will back off. Right, right. And, and, and again, we're going to talk about this after the break, though, but how can we how can we do this more locally? Because I, I think far too many people don't see signaling when it happens, right, until, until you recognize that it's out there. Um, and and for the record, just pr- price signaling isn't isn't just necessarily lowering the price. It can be up upping the price too sometimes. But what the, I don't know, Ron, what's your definition of price signaling? My, mine mine is just a a, a price that's used um, with the intention of competitors hearing about it. 
Right. I mean, it it, it, it kind of grew out of this idea to avoid price wars. That was the big thing. We're going to signal that we're, we're not going to engage in this destructive behavior. Um, mm-hmm. But it can be used for other things as well. But I think of it as a, as a mechanism to avoid price wars, to try and raise value through a, a, across an entire industry. Um, and, and we'll talk more about that when we come back from the break. All right. Well, right now, we want to remind you, you can get a hold of myself or Ron at asktsoe at verisage.com. There's the event, Art of Value. So you want to go to artofvalue.com slash event to see more about that. And of course, please do continue reviewing The Soul of Enterprise, both on iTunes and our book. If you had a chance to read our book on Amazon, those are those are the currency we use. Those are the, the, the Bitcoin of radio. So please go out and uh, give, the, give us reviews on those two places. And right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back here. I just, Ron, just wanted to give the, the, the actual formal definition of price signal, which is uh, a price signal is information conveyed to consumers and producers. And I think the, the key is there and producers via the price charge for a product or service, which provides a signal to increase or decrease supply or demand. I, I, you know, we're, we're not a big supply and demand, especially with regard to professional firms, because we think that those are unique. But I do think that the technique of price signaling can be something that's used by firms uh, at a very local level, especially if you know you've got competition for a particular bid. And of course, the way that we would recommend that you might use this is is with offering choices, right, which we've done multiple shows on. But one thing that I, I don't think that we've ever talked about specifically, Ron, would be creating what's called a flanking product, right? Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. which is is I think one of the the great ways to co- combat any kind of a price war situation, and 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 that is 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 to make your, usually not always, but usually your lowest price option so extraordinarily low, but stripped of any of the value, or well, not any of the value, but, but much of the higher value items, so that you when you make the offer out to the prospective customer. They, if there's, if they are truly buying on price, you can offer them this ob- I- extremely attractive price. It might even be as low as a tenth the price of your mid, mid, middle priced option, like really low. But what they, what, what, what you're showing them is, is okay. This is what you could get this for, but it's, it's absolute bare bones, right? So you take, you strip all of that value out. And then, of course, what they will look at is perhaps your mid option and say, but this is the stuff that we really want. And you can say, well, that's great. Then you can pay that middle price. But it also, because you have that low price in there, if they're truly buying on price and they're going to look at other other offerings from other competitors of yours, none of them are going are to have that lowest price offering out there at all. So if right. they're truly based on price, you might get the business. But I want to mention something. I think, I think Reed... I don't know if Reed talked about this, to be honest with you. It's been a while since I've listened to that show. But one of the mistakes that uh, I th- that he mentions in his book that, P- that P- producers often do is they create a flanking product, especially in times of a downturn, but they don't withdraw it once business improves. Right. And, Right, and you can, and and this this can really destroy business because what what has to happen is that over the course of time, if you do have this flanking product product out there, you've got to do one of two things. You've got to either slowly increase that price up, like a ten percent increase, like every six months or something, on that flanking product, to get it to a point where it's back in alignment with your other prices. Otherwise, it's it's going to be a huge problem for you long term. So uh, just just a warning out there: do not have any, uh, you know, a, a uh, an unnecessarily fl- an unnecessary flanking product. It's a huge problem. Right, and I think the other the other signal that the flanking product sends is, listen, <laughs> you know, you can go after our low end, but you stay the heck away from our high end. And you see this with Apple iPhones. You saw it with the Apple iPod Shuffle, right? Mm-hmm. The the Shuffle was a strip, very stripped out version. Heck, you couldn't even pick the song you wanted to listen to, right? It would just play them randomly. But yep. I think that was more of a signal to you know other mp3 player producers that hey you, you're not going to go after the top end of our market here we own this and so that that to me is a form of price signaling again to kind of you know like you say the producers and the consumers but to me it's more more so about the producers at least the way i've seen it used um it, it's really about um signaling to the industry that you're, you're not going to engage in this destructive behavior um, you see this when you see CEOs, especially CEOs or other C-suite people, talk about the importance of profits in an industry. That That's a very subtle signal to their competition that they're not going to engage in destructive pricing wars or behavior. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and, and I see that more, Ed. Again, this is like this red Volkswagen thing. Now that I'm tuned to see this, I see it more. You know, you even see it in some books that CEOs write, <laughs> and it's a, it is a very uh, subtle form of price signaling. The other thing is uh, imitating competitors' prices. Uh, this is something that economists call conscious parallelism. 
uh, parallel. Easy for you to say. <laughs> parallelism. Sorry, parallelism. Um, and and uh, th- these are these are strategies like price match guarantees. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll match our competitor. Well, this is just a way to keep everybody on their toes, right? And and not engage in destructive price cutting. If you do, the the competitor is going to find out about it really fast. But it also does, I think, something very subtle to the consumer. It gives them the assurance that this probably is a good price, and they're not going to, you know, go shop it around, right? Mm-hmm. When was the last time that some uh, some merchant said to you, "Oh, if you find these tires cheaper, we'll match it"? Well, what are you going to do? Go to forty tire shops until you get a cheaper right. price? Even even doing that on the web is a pain in the butt, mm-hmm. right? So yep. that that that's a form of of you know price matching, and th- those that's a very subtle sign or a subtle use of price signaling, but it's very effective. It is effective, and it's and you know what's interesting is how many of of the larger businesses also they kind of game that too, Ron, because they they do make certain models only available at specific stores. Like there might be a slight variation, you know, you know, who's, yep. who's, who's big time at this. And I, you know, I haven't seen it for a while since my youngest daughter is going to turn nine next week, but, uh, diapers. Yeah. That, oh, cause wow. like, for example, for example, you know, at Walmart, you can buy the, you know, the package of 52, but the same package at target actually has 54 diapers in it. Right. So you right. can never, you can, <laughs> you can never say, oh, well, yours is cheaper because yeah. You so got to do the math game. now. Yeah, you yeah. do. You right. do because they go back right. and forth. And I've I've also seen it with TVs and stuff. Like there's only certain models that are available either on Amazon or at Best Buy that you can't get a lower price anywhere because well this model's only sold at this store. At this, I mean that's partly price obfuscation, right? I mean make it difficult to compare, kind of like cell phone plans. Uh, the other thing, Ed, is just you you were talking about bringing this down to the local level, and I just want to say. If you see a competitor raise a price, reward them by raising yours. And keep in mind that it's always better uh, for your competitors to maintain an advantage with a higher price than a lower price because then it makes it very costly for them to cut their prices. So when you see a competitor raise a price, you know, maybe you should follow suit. A lot of times that makes a lot of sense. That's a great point, which is kind of the inverse of the flanking product that I was talking about, right? So create something that's significantly higher uh, might be an interesting thing to do and an experiment with, especially in a, I would, th- I would think that in an up market, that would be the place to start trying that. If, if I'm going to lose to a competitor, Ed, I, I'd rather much lose them to them charging the customer a higher price than a lower price than mine. Sure. Because <laughs> yeah. maybe that will kick me in the butt to provide more value, or maybe just up my price because I'm I'm underpriced. It's part of the market giving you some feedback. That that's a great point. Is that you know, hey, maybe you've become too complacent in the value that you think you you you've been delivering. You know, which is why some of those questions about delivering value in the future are so important. Yeah, I, this is a fascinating topic. It's a little studied, maybe not, not as well understood, but I'm starting to see it more. And I think you, you have to thank for this, that the pricers that have kind of moved into the C-suite, because this has become such a, a big profession now, you know, just, just go to a professional pricing society conference uh, and you can see how, how this organization has grown and how pricing has just been elevated uh, to the C-suite. And so I think they're getting more sophisticated uh, with their messaging 
um, both to consumers, but I think it's more important even to producers, um, you know, to avoid price wars. Well, this is great. Well, Ron, Ron, what do we got coming up next week? I actually gave it away earlier. Oh, well, I'm so excited. It's Free Rider Friday. Awesome. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours. All right. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy. Sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please visit our website at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.